This is David Suisa. Welcome to my podcast. Our guest today is Samantha Narov. She does not match the image of a wounded warrior. She's not in a wheelchair. She has all of her limbs, but she's officially known as a wounded warrior. Her PTSD was crippling. She was one of the first women to deploy the desert storm in 1990. She was medevaced out of a combat scene in Iraq in 2008, and she returned home a wounded warrior. Since coming home, she's been an outspoken and successful advocate for PTSD awareness, women's rights in general, and victims of gender violence. And she's now the founder of America Matters. Welcome, Samantha. Thank you very much. We've never had a, a veteran here. It's uh, appropriate a couple of days after Memorial Day. Well, thank you. You know, Memorial Day is an important day. Wow. Yeah, we have so many people thanking us for our service. And as valuable as that is, I always tell people that thank you. Thank you for the appreciation. But truly, the heroes here are those who laid down their lives, who are willing to fight and die for the freedom that we all live with every day and take for granted in many cases. What's it like? I mean, do you have uh, what's it like to fight in a war? We, we always, you know, we hear media stories. Uh, but none of us really have the experience of jumping out of an airplane with a gun in our hands and fighting, fighting an enemy. And you've lived that. How can you describe that? Um, and how do you still have images? Do you have memories? Oh, I do. I still suffer from many of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. I have nightmares uh, routinely. I, I'm extremely hypervigilant. I don't sit with my back to a window. I have to see the room. I can tell you about any time how many people are in any given room, any given building, any area. I'm always watching the doors at restaurants uh, because you never know when the bad guys are going to come through. You never know when something's going to happen. Well, you're like in a, in a, you know, in a, in a fight or flight mode. Like I, I would imagine that being in a war scene, you're so on, your adrenaline and every fraction of a second you have to be completely on because something horrible can happen any second and if that's prolonged for a long period of time I had a guest recently who said the body cannot handle a prolonged state of being so on that guest was 100% right we're not built for that and when people go to war and they come back and they say everything is okay really because war is an abnormal state so living through war and being alert, being part of it, is an abnormal state. We shouldn't have to be that. We weren't created to be in that place. Right, like we hear today about the mindfulness movement, but we're talking here about an extreme level of mindfulness, which is an incredible, intense alertness. And then how long, give, give us an example of how long of a stretch were you in a war situation were you in a combat zone? Well, I was one of the first women to deploy to Saudi prior to Desert Storm, prior to Desert Shield, uh, when Saddam invaded Kuwait in early August. Within a few days, I was on a plane headed over to Saudi Arabia. I was in the 18th Airborne Corps. I was a paratrooper. And we thought we were going to jump in. We thought we were going to jump into hostile territory. And that's what we were prepared for. We didn't, in fact. We ended up landing with the plane. And honestly, we were a bunch of pretty pissed off paratroopers because it's no fun to go to war if you don't get to jump out of a plane. That might not make sense to kind of the average person. Why would you want to jump out of a perfectly good airplane? And 
why would you want to do that in combat when you know people are shooting at you? Why? Because we were soldiers. And that's what you were trained for. And that's what we were trained for. Yeah, you're not there to practice like this, like a basketball player. You can't just have practices every day. You've got to have the game. And in your case, the game was combat. The game is combat. The game is going to war, staying alive, doing our jobs. And for me, at that time, I was a platoon leader. And I considered myself one of the most blessed and fortunate people. I was in my 20s. I was a platoon leader. I'm a woman. I was airborne. I was at Fort Bragg. And we were going to war. Hua. Airborne. Do you remember your first combat situation? I was in Iran night operations. Uh, this is in early August. And we heard gunfire coming at us. And it was moving toward us. And at that time, my platoon sergeant and I, we ran to the front of our tent. So we had this big operations tent because we wanted to get to the front so that we could protect everything inside the tent. We didn't hide in the back. We ran out to the front. What, what time of day was it? This was at night. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, no, this was at night. It was dark. Did you have night goggles? Uh, did not have night goggles. Uh, we were carrying M16s. And we were waiting for the enemy to get close enough to start firing back. That's what we were there for. That's what we were there to and do. That happened? was to protect. As the fire, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the fire start coming closer to us, then it dissipated. Hmm. But my platoon sergeant and I were standing there, and if we had to take a bullet, we were ready, standing wow. right with each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because that's what we did. Uh, you know, we were setting up the tactical communications, the backbone of communications so that the 18th Airborne Corps commander could come into the theater of operations. And was there a combat situation? I mean, if I ask a difficult question, forgive me, where you saw casualties around you? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, this was actually during the war element of Desert Storm. You know, this is after you know, the war had started and there were studies. Is it crazy when this things firing all, all around you? Is this just, it what's is. What's it like? Well, there's a clarity to it. In, in the midst of great chaos comes a clarity of mission because I knew what I was doing. I knew what I was trained for. And I was responsible not just for myself, not just for my job, but I was responsible for the lives of everyone in my unit. And you're not really like thinking the way you and I are thinking now because you don't really have time to to think you're just in total survival reaction, reaction yeah. mode, right? Absolutely. And there's the bullets and bombs going everywhere. What's it like? When the bombs are coming, you can hear it and we know what to do. We know what to prepare. Now, during Desert Storm, we were prepared for chemical attacks. Hmm. So not only are we thinking, get to shelter. Not only are we thinking, is this a chemical attack? Be prepared to put on our chemical gear. But then I'm looking around saying, do I have all my people? We were going to underground bunkers at the time. Now, in Iraq, 18 years later, we had above ground, they were called duck and covers. Mm. They were cement fortified, sandbag fortified rooms, basically, that were built in different areas of the camps and the, the forward operating bases so that when there was that air fire coming in, when they, we heard the alarms you know, that said, alert, alert, incoming, incoming, we would bolt. If we were outside, we would bolt for one of those duck and covers mm. to stay safe. I mean, that's when I injured my ankle during Iraq, you know, during Iraqi freedom. And I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell anyone I was injured. I splinted my own ankle. 
And I walked on it, forced myself not to limp because I didn't want anyone to know I was hurt. You're like Kobe Bryant. Because I, you know why? I was afraid that if they knew I was hurt, they would take me out of the battle, mm. that I might have to go home. And I was doing everything I could to stay there and fight in the war, to be part of what I was doing, and to, you know, to stay with my teammates, to stay with my comrade in arms. Were you there doing those horrible IEDs? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we were there doing IEDs. Um, you know, fortunately, I did not experience an IED myself, but people in my unit did uh, in a mission where I was supposed to have been on that mission. But There's I ended up flying a different terrifying. direction. I mean, it's like terror. Oh, it is. When you're driving and you have no idea when at any point some hidden bomb will just explode your tank or truck. What's even worse than that is when post-traumatic stress disorder sets in and that feeling doesn't go away. Because in a combat situation, in a combat zone, like Iraq, like Saudi. You've got to react. And we're ready for it. And that's, that's the appropriate emotion. That's the appropriate reaction. That's the appropriate thought. But coming back to now the US. Now you're home and you're in your family room at your parents' house or you're in an apartment and you're at a Starbucks. I would drive to CVS and look for IEDs. Right. And you got way, almost way too much time on your hands. And I was carrying those same reactions and the same responses and the same alertness here, which was not normal because inside my head I hadn't made that separation yet. And one of the things that had happened with the PTSD was I confused wars. While I was in Iraq, I started seeing things that were, had happened in Desert Storm because I was, it was called disassociation. I was disassociating between two very distinct and separate events. Iraq was a completely different war than Desert Storm was. But during Desert Storm, I was in Scud missile attacks, small arms fire. Uh, you asked uh, a few minutes ago if, you know, if I had seen the chaos. I was, uh, w during the war, my unit was at a site that was co-located with one of the medical sites, which is where they were bringing the dead and dying POWs. They were, they were burned. They were yelling and screaming. And as they were coming in, this was affecting my soldiers because we were right there in the middle of that and we had Scud missile attacks happening almost every day. So you're seeing the darkest part of humanity, the darkest part of life, uh, horrible pain, people that you love that are writhing in pain, screaming in pain, people that are dying, and then you come back home, and you're now in New York City or Los Angeles or wherever, and it's very, very difficult to shake those things out of your memory. It is. And there, there are two camps with PTSD. There are some people who think that PTSD is something that can be cured, and then others who say that PTSD is something you live with. It's like, like a ring, like a sound. You know, sometimes it's like a bell sound or something, and it just keeps ringing in your ears, and it feels like it's just never going to go away, and it lasts for like a few minutes. And I guess in your case, it can last for a lifetime. Is that what I'm hearing? That's exactly. I think that's a great way to put it, actually, because it is. It's that insidious ringing in my ear that it might be a little louder sometimes and a little softer at others, but it's always there. And I have to be aware of my surroundings because I've had flashbacks in some very inappropriate places. I had a flashback on a flight from Miami uh, 
about five years ago, I was in uniform. I had not retired yet. And as I got on the aircraft, I just had this wave of, and it was just, it was a flashback. I was back in Iraq. I took a gunner position in the doorway of a commercial airplane. Mm. And when the flight attendants came over to try to move me, I punched them. Oh, man. You, you were triggered. I was completely triggered, and I would not leave that fighting position. That was my fighting position, and I was going to make sure that I defended the doorway of that aircraft. You know, I, uh, I'm friends with a rape survivor, something that happened many, many years ago, and she tells me all the time that she has triggers that she needs to manage. <laughs> it, one of her biggest challenges in life is to not be taken over by the triggers because they're going to happen and you you feel them holocaust survivors have that ringing in their ear especially those that have been uh, traumatized by seeing their close ones die part of my family is jewish and i grew up around holocaust survivors many you know many of my family members died uh, in the camps you know auschwitz and some of the others but i also grew up around survivors and so i remember that feeling as a, just a young child, and also thinking, where was the rest of the world to stand up for this? What was happening was so wrong. And even as a young child, I wanted to stand up and fight because there was this horrible wrong happening that had happened, and I knew I needed to do something. So when I got old enough and it became my turn, I went to college. I paid my way through college, waiting tables. Did you navigate triggers all the way through? Unfortunately, in the military, yes, because I had a fantastic first assignment. I was in Korea. It was tactical. I was in the field all the time, and I had one of the best colonels as my battalion commander in the history of the United States Army, James P. Robison. Mm. The man was absolute dynamite. When I went to Fort Bragg, unfortunately, I, had a, I was in a command situation where, unfortunately, they didn't really like women in the military. So there was a lot of animosity. Which year was that? This was in, I got to Fort Bragg in 1990, just prior to Desert Storm. And during Desert Storm. So this Storm, is before your PTSD yes. phase. Yeah, this is before the PTSD. Right, I, I'm, I'm interested in the PTSD phase, and I'll tell you why, because when you were talking about triggers, I was very good friends with a Holocaust survivor called Eva Brown, who passed away a couple of years ago. She had 69 members of her family who perished in the Holocaust. She was the biggest lover of life I've ever met in my life. And her, her reaction to the trauma was to live life to the fullest. She figured that was the best revenge she can get, and that was the best way to honor her fallen family members was to just double down on life, right? And we had the greatest relationship. She would come to my house all the time. And then one day she just freaked out because I was interviewing her for a story, and she told me, that um, her daughter had called the termite exterminators for their house. And when they came, she, she panicked. Now, this was not a woman that was traumatized by triggers because she had already decided that she was going to live life to the fullest. But even in her case, she said, I freaked out because I had this dark image of how in the concentration camps, they killed us like termites. She even used that phrase that I put in the column. And she, she, when she was 16 years old, she went to 10 different concentration camps 
at 16 in one year, right? So she went to the lowest of the lowest depths, and that was a trigger. And I, and I can imagine that there's so many millions of people around the world today are living their life uh, with some kind of trauma from their past, and we just walk by them on the street, and we don't know who they are. That's an interesting perspective, especially because we hear so much about PTSD now, but we usually hear about it in terms of combat. We've been at war for many years now. So we do have veterans coming back, but PTSD is not limited to combat. It's not limited to veterans. You're talking about Eva, who had experienced a terrible trauma, and it doesn't go away. And I know that, but I also made a decision that I'm not going to be a victim. There are things that happened to me, even during Desert Storm, military sexual trauma. And it's something that I don't like talking about, but I do, and I have because it's important. Well, that's a perfect segue to America Matters, because that is, that's a, an example of you standing up, deciding that you're not going to wallow in victimhood, and despite the trauma of your past, you started this organization called America Matters. Tell us about it. When I came back from Iraq, I saw this very polarized country. And I realized that as I was going through my recovery, that my fight wasn't over. The war wasn't over. And there were a lot of battles still ahead. And I needed to decide what was the most and the best I could do, well, for myself, for my own recovery, but also for our country. Because if you cut me right now, I bleed red, right, and blue. I mean, that might sound kind of cheesy, but I do. So do I. And I always have. And I believe in both sides of the political spectrum. I believe in the left and the right. I believe that there are great ideas on both sides. I also agree. I also think there are some things we can all agree on. Now, hold on. Before you say, seriously, Sam, because that's what most people do say to me, yeah, there are. Because I th we can all agree that we want... We want freedom of and from religion. We want to be safe in our homes and communities. We want our children to have an excellent education. We want children to be safe and free. And each of us want to achieve the American dream. You know, our it's interesting you say that, Sam, because uh, you know I'm totally immersed in the Jewish world. And we got so many inner battles, so many fights, so many debates, arguments divisions. And once in a while, somebody will pop up and say, hey, wait, time out. Uh, we agree on 90% of things. And then somebody will say, really, we do? And the truth is that we, it's really easy to overlook uh, how much we are in agreement in the Jewish world among so many things. But somehow, 99% of the focus is on the stuff we disagree with. And I guess I partly understand that because good news is not that exciting. And bad news, not bad news, but conflict and division and struggle is, is sort of what, what keeps us going, what keeps us growing, right? But it does create the distorted perception that we're at each other's throats a lot more than we really are. And I also think that common ground and compromise have somehow become these confusing words in our culture today, that people think they mean the same thing. They don't. If we have common ground, that means we agree. We don't have to compromise on anything. Right. We can just agree, and it's an okay thing to do. It's right. okay. To, it doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right. 
we can, in fact, find some things we agree on. Now, and that was part of your objective with America absolutely. Matters. Let's find the stuff that we can all agree on. And I say, I tell people this all the time. At America Matters, come to the table. And we're going to talk about things. And we're going to have these great deep conversations. But leave your party and your politics at the door. Check it at the door and come on in with your ideas. Give me uh, an example of a concrete initiative. Well, one of our initiatives at America Matters is I've taken on the fight to stop female genital mutilation. It's something that's happening here in the United States, and people don't realize that. Usually when I talk about female genital mutilation... People assume it's happening overseas. Bingo. Or they'll say, oh, well, that's a Muslim thing, or that's, isn't that, that doesn't happen here. Third it world. happens in those third world countries. I and didn't know it was an issue here, honestly. Well... According to our Centers for Disease Control, in coordination with UNICEF and the World Health Organization, there are over 513,000 little girls who have either undergone female genital mutilation or are at risk right here, right now, in the United States. Is there a legal issue? There's a huge legal issue, and that's one of the things... So you're saying it's being done, you know, hidden from the law? Well, yes and no. And that's one of uh, the pieces of our initiative that's enormously important. In 96, there was a federal law that was enacted here in the United States that criminalized female genital mutilation with a sentence of up to five years in prison. And it was bipartisan. Harry Reid did a fantastic job pushing this through. And there was great bipartisan work for that bill. In the ensuing years, 26 states have also come online with legislation that criminalizes female genital mutilation. So when you say, well, let's see, we've got 50 states, 26 have laws. Yeah, that's right. 24 states do not have laws that criminalize the practice of female genital mutilation. And the federal government has the law, right? The federal government has the law. Is that enough for those states that do not have the law? to no. prosecute? No, it's not. Because the federal government usually comes into play when state lines have been crossed. Like right now, the first federal female genital mutilation trial is, uh, right now it's going to be in uh, January of 20, yeah, 2019. The doctor from the Detroit area was arrested in April of 2017 for fe mutilating two little girls. Those girls had traveled from Minnesota, their mothers, drove them from Minnesota to Michigan. this clinic in the Detroit area of Michigan where she cut off their genitals. Wow. So that becomes a, a federal case. It's a federal case. Yeah. It's almost difficult for me to talk about this. It's, um, but uh, before you leave the studio yeah. today, I, I'd like the list of the states that don't have those laws because uh, that seems to me it should be a no-brainer. It absolutely is. Alabama, Arkansas, Connecticut, Hawaii, Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Kentucky, Maine, Massachusetts, Mississippi, Montana, Nebraska, New Hampshire, New Mexico, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Utah, Vermont, Washington, and Wyoming. But sure, David, I'll, I'll give you that list when I leave. You've studied this issue. I care about this issue because I care about the intersection the intersectionality of the human experience. And because I know this is happening, people ask me all the time, why you? you know, has this ever happened to anyone in your family? Did it happen to you? Did you survive this? No. The answer is no to all of this. I've survived sexual trauma. I know about gender violence against women. And it was horrific. 
I still suffer from the vestiges of trauma from that. But no, this did not happen to me, but I know it's happening to others. And because I know that I'm called, I have to do something to stop this. How can we not? How can we M- many let this of us, happen? Many of us don't know much about this, uh, FGM. Um, what, what is the average age that a girl is, that it's done to a girl? The average age is somewhere between 3 and 13 years old. This is not done in medical clinics. Now, here in the United States, this one case in Michigan, this is a doctor who is American-born. She got her medical degree at Johns Hopkins, and she was, in fact, doing this in a clinic. Do they try to have a religious sort of um, explanation to get around the laws? Has that happened? You know, that, that can be part of this equation. Oh, but this is not a religious issue because, you know, today I'm here with a survivor of female genital mutilation who, she's Christian. She's from Ethiopia. I work with another survivor who is Muslim from Somalia and another survivor who is Catholic, another survivor. So we're talking about right. multiple religions, right. multiple Right, so it's, a, it's an ethnic, nationalistic yeah. Not just a religious thing. So if you're in Ethiopia and it's the tradition and the custom there, it's going to happen to you whether you're Christian or, or any other religion. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, then that's, and then what's happening here in the United States is as our immigrant populations are growing, from the 30 countries, including the United States, where this practice is prevalent, now we're seeing an increase in numbers of at-risk girls. And right now over 200 million women 200 million women around the world right now have undergone female genital mutilation. And when the genitalia of a, of a child is cut off, then that not only does that stop her, the, the senses and her intimacy and her ability. Does it preclude uh, sexual pleasure? Absolutely. The rest of your life? Absolutely. You know what this means? It precludes the sexual pleasure. Uh, it causes great pain, suffering a lifetime of not only the physical damage and the physical problems, we're talking about urinary urinary tract infections, yeast infections, bladder infections, fiscula, uh, problems with intimacy, uh, complications during childbirth. Can I ask a crazy question? Why in the world would any society want to do that? I think that's the hardest thing especially as Americans, for us to get our head around. It's not that these people who are doing this, in most cases they're not doing this because they're trying to hurt their little girls. They're doing it because this is what their culture has done for centuries. And inside this, the, the traditional aspect of this practice in the culture, they think that they're helping the girls. They think that they're protecting her virginity, her purity, making it an opportunity for men to want to marry her. Uh, that if she doesn't, if this is not done to her, that she will be ostracized by the community. She will be seen as unclean, unworthy, bad. Wow. So, so when this is done, the parents are doing this out of a very misguided sense of love, which is, I'll tell you, that's part of the toughest piece of the issue is educating and informing these communities that, yes, this may be what they have been taught their entire lives. It's what they've been doing for centuries. But it's harmful. It's hurtful. It causes a lifetime of emotional pain 
Just for all your listeners out there, as you're speaking, I want to let you know that right after Sam is done, uh, we have a survivor of FGM right here in our studios, and I'll be speaking to her. English is not her first language, but hopefully we can sort of get into that subject more, which uh, just fascinates me. Are you gaining any traction uh, legally uh, in terms of the movement, the initiative? Absolutely. We have a 50-state strategy to look at the 24 states that do not have the laws, but also look at the 26 states that do have the laws and ensure that the laws they have are adequate protection for these girls. If somebody wanted to help you, your cause, what would they do? Get on your website and everything's there? Come to americamatters.com. We have an FGM page. There's a petition to sign. There's information and a way to sign up to be part of our movement. We're also huge on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, At Facebook, we are America Matters Now. And America does matter now because we have the ability to not only protect these little girls, but we also have the ability to help people like the woman who's here today, Netsanit, achieve a a happier, more fulfilled life. It's so interesting because right now we're in the throes of the Me Too movement and women are being empowered in a beautiful way to speak out you know, from their trauma, from their horrible experiences, from harassment, from rape, and so forth. And this seems to me it ought to be part of the same movement. I agree. And that's one of the things that I'm very, very dedicated with America Matters and our staff to work with the Me Too movement, work with other organizations, again, both sides of the political spectrum. This should never be a political issue. Have People you gotten shouldn't some press, it. Samantha, on this? We have. Uh, we've had some press. We've had, we did a stop FGM day in Minnesota in April. Uh, we had a lot of, we had two survivors speak. Uh, we had men speak. We had women speak. I spoke. Uh, we had legislators on both sides of the political spectrum speak. Have you reached out to religious leaders? Uh, we are in the process of doing that. Uh, yes, we have. And there are There are a few churches that we are working with now, and we're looking to build that because we're looking... Synagogues, mosques? Uh, Yeah, a synagogue, yes. Um, Also, there's an organization that we've partnered with that talks to the mosques and the mosque boards about this. Are you getting any sort of traction in the Muslim community? Oh, absolutely. Uh, One of the first things I did when, you know, with America Matters, FGM is one of the... You know, that's our really our big campaign for 2018. But we also do other things. Uh, we've, we really uh, look at American values and the importance of recognizing and honoring cultures and people who come to the United States, and, but also making sure that people follow the laws and people are here to do the right and safe things. We do a lot of work in education ensuring that our children have the best education possible, and also in national security. With FGM, I realized immediately that to be effective, it's got to be the right message, the right person, at the right time to the right audience. And to do that, we created a coalition of, well, now we're over 35 members and organizations on both sides of the political spectrum, some don't agree on anything except FGM. But they agree FGM. on this one. They agree on this. And because we're a completely centrist, nonpartisan organization, 
it makes us a safe place for people to come together with ideas. And we've got different religions, we've got different ethnicities, people from many different countries. We're working with people around the world now, not just here in the United States, but survivors in Nigeria, UK, Tanzania, the United States. Uh, okay, but let's talk about the bad guys. I mean, there's half yeah. a million girls in, living in America who've been subjected to genital mutilation. Obviously, it's being done somewhere. Um, do you find out who the culprits are? Do you demonstrate outside their homes? Wh what do you do? Well, you've just identified one of the most difficult things. Unfortunately, this is shrouded in silence and secrecy. When this is done, it's, it's not broadcast. People don't know about this. It's the, unfortunately, this is done by mothers, grandmothers, the aunties. Mm. This is not, it's patriarchal oppression. Right, it's, done, it's, it's done in private homes. There's no official. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, here's another thing that happens. It's called vacation cutting. So, you know, there's a survivor I'm working with uh, now who, she's American born. And she was taken on vacation when she was seven years old back to her parents' country of origin. Which is a lot easier to do there. And she was randomly, she was out with her mother and her aunt, and she was taken to an apartment, and the ladies pinned her down. And she was screaming to be let go. And they, they pinned her down, spread her legs, they pulled down her panties, and a cutter came in. Wow. And I... with a dull razor blade, cut off her genitals. Wow. This not a sterile environment. There was no anesthesia. It's actually hard for me to even listen to it. Uh, and she and came back. Here's here's the worst part. She came back to the United States, and it was treated as if nothing happened. She could have gone to school with, you know, my children or your children. There are people here. We don't realize how close this touches us. And and from the little we all know about this, do you know if they try to use some kind of anesthesia to lessen the pain? Do we know anything about that? Or is it as brutal as the scene you just depicted? It's as brutal as the scene I depicted. Right here in America. Right here in America. Mm -hmm. And in other countries around the world. Right, because a grandmother will not know anything about anesthesia. There's no anesthesiologist in a home. Right. To do this if it's done in, in private homes. And then w you would think, though, that some of these girls um, would come out and say something, you know, or just, I don't know. Has any, has they any are. girl? Are they? They are. And that's mm -hmm. the best part. And that's one of the things that America Matters does is we're looking to work with activists, people who want a voice in this. And that doesn't say matter. No. Yeah. Say no. Like, don't let them do that to you. And if, you, if, if, if you're five years old and you're a girl and you see your mother, your grandmother, or anyone come to you and do this, here's a number you can call right away. And well, you know what they're doing in Sweden is there's a movement now in Sweden where when this is being done to little girls, there's a big campaign to get the information out to them that if they're going through customs, if they're traveling, to put a spoon in their underwear because the spoon will trigger the metal detector, wow. and then the child will be taken you know, by security by themselves because that's a way, you know, it's hard for, even though this is happening, even though this is a terrible, painful, hurtful thing, we're talking about children turning against their parents. Mm -hmm. 
that's a really tough thing to do Correct. because when you're five years old Correct. and this happens, even when it's done by your parents, where are you going to go? Right. Right. Yeah, and because then you assume that anything that comes from your parents, is you have no choice. And it, so it shatters that safety and security. And mm -hmm. here in America, we owe that to children, not just our own children, mm -hmm. but to every child. Now, are you getting static from any kind of opposition? I mean, is this more prevalent in one community versus another? Is it like more prevalent in the Ethiopian, for example, community or the Muslim community? Is it? Not all Muslims practice this. Mm -hmm. So this is not an issue of faith or religion. Uh, it's an issue of, again, culture. Culture. So certain countries. Right. And so... Which countries? Uh, which countries? Um, Ethiopia, Sierra Leone, Somalia, uh, Tanzania. I can go through the list. There you know, it's interesting because we have an Ethiopian neighborhood not far from us. On, uh, on Fairfax, I drive by it all the time. They have Ethiopian restaurants and so forth. I wonder if we sent some enterprising reporter to sort of infiltrate the community, if we would find out that it happens right here in L.A. What do you think? Well, it does happen right here in L.A. As a matter of fact, unfortunately, L.A. is one of the hotspots for this. It's one of the has one of the highest populations of at-risk children for female gender mutilation. Why is that? because of the size of the immigrant populations. I see. And when you're talking about Ethiopia, Ethiopia has a 77% FGM rate. Somalia has a 98% rate. That's 98% so of the girls have been if mutilated. You, if you meet a female over the age of, say, 15, who is from Somalia, there's a 98% chance that she has undergone female genital mutilation. Look, Samantha, i got to tell you something. If there's one thing you do for the rest of your life, and it's FGM, and you fight this cause, you will have, uh, you will be worthy of three or four great lives. Because this cause just seems to me like it should be a, a, a slam dunk for all of us, for everyone. I and it, and it, the, the thing that strikes me, too, about the cause is that it's so difficult to identify because it's silent and mysterious. You know, so many causes that I get involved with or that we cover at the journal are a lot more visible. We see it. It could be, you know, homelessness, for example. Causes are visible, but this one is not. This one is dark and secret, so you have your work cut out for you. Yes. You would think it's slam dunk. It should be slam dunk, because what are we talking about? We're talking about the genitalia of little girls being cut off without anesthesia, and in, not in sterile conditions. I mean, sexual harassment is a slam dunk right now. I mean, this is right. This is child abuse. Yeah. I mean, that, let's say that let's say that somebody punched their child inside McDonald's. By the time they got out the door, the police would be there to arrest them for child abuse. And are you? I mean, uh, is there anyone else? Is there? Are there any other organizations in America fighting the same cause? And are you in touch with them? Absolutely. That's why I started this coalition. The coalition is comprised of other people who are fighting this, not just individuals, but other organizations. Such as? Oh, let's see. Such as, God, let me, uh, let me think about my list. Well, I can tell Center you the states, but... the Center for Disease but, Control, I mean, some yeah, of the big I mean, ones. the Center for Disease Control, the World Health Organization, mm -hmm. UNICEF, you know, on an international level. Right. Uh, and you they know, have offices here. 
Uh, yes. How about Human Rights Watch and some of those? Uh, some of the organizations that you would think would take this on have not yet. You know, and that's one of the things that we're trying to do. We're trying to raise this, you know, raise this to a point Awareness. of extreme understanding and extreme knowledge where people know this is happening. Have you tried the United Nations, Nikki Haley? She's phenomenal, and they've been doing, the United Nations has been doing a lot of work. As a matter of fact, I spoke at the United Nations last November on this exact subject. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yes, there is definitely a movement there. And there are many organizations who are, like I said, who are working this, many activists. You know, the woman we're meeting today, who you're going to be talking to, she's, you know, been working with America Matters, but she is an activist in her own right. Uh, there's, you know, what about the Women's others. March? I mean, there's been such, such a, um, so much news has happened, you know, around the Women's Marches for the past couple of years. And have they, have you been in touch with them? It's very difficult to get uh, the positive response that we're looking for from some of these other organizations and some of these other movements. Why not? I think, um, I think female gender mutilation is a really tough one. I think it's tough because people have to admit that it's happening. And we're talking about cultures that we have to start with silence and secrecy. And many of these people, they don't want to admit it's happening inside their own cultures. They don't want to admit that it's happening here. As a matter of fact, a lot of the work I do in the different states, uh, there are groups of women who will come in and testify at the same committee hearings I'm testifying at, and they will say that this doesn't happen in their community. If you reached out to somebody like Linda Sarsour, for example, who's a major prominent name in the Women's March, what do you think she would say? I know there have been efforts afoot. Now, I have not personally reached out to her, but I do know that others in this movement have, and unfortunately, that's fallen on deaf ears. And why do you think that is? Again, I think there's a lot of denial. Mm -hmm. I think people want to deny this is happening. Do you Instead, think she's concerned that it would sort of, um, you know, undermine the, um, her religion and her ethnic background? Yeah, I can't speak to her mental state. I can't speak to what she's thinking. But just by logical deduction, I would think that that would be the case. Because when this is happening to children, why wouldn't she? Why wouldn't anyone? How could anyone not pick this up as an issue? If you're going to have a woman's march, why not have female genital mutilation as part of it? It seems to me uh, that would be the case. But it's, since it's so mysterious and hidden, uh, do you find it that it's difficult to actually get the numbers and the statistics? Is that like an issue? It is tough. And when I said 513,000 girls are at risk here in the United States right now, they're either at risk or have undergone this practice, the sad part about that is that that, lump, that number is horrifically low. And where does it come from? That number comes from a, a number of studies over the, the past few years where they've taken where you know, the Centers for Disease Control, they, they've taken the, the size of the immigrant populations here in the United States based on the 30 countries where this is a prevalent practice. And so this is more of a numbers game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is not going into a family saying, so have right. you mutilated your little girl who's 16 years old? Right. Or do you plan on mutilating your three-year-old? 
that doesn't happen. So this is numbers. This is looking at the statistics of families and family sizes and the number of girl children. I, in I wonder if you can supplement some of those studies with reaching out online through your social media and, you know, invite uh, victims to, you know, to come out. You're going to hear that in just a few minutes because the amazingly courageous activist who is here today to, to speak with you and your audience. Nitsanet. Nitsanet. Nitsanet Megistu from Ethiopia. Okay. Uh, she reached out to me. She, uh, and she'll tell you in her own words, when she, she's been here for two years now, and she wanted to become active in FGM. So she Googled, she reached out to a number of organizations. You know, like I said, there are many who are working on this. And she reached out. The minute I got her email, I called her on the phone. She said she was in Virginia. I said, where are you? And I got in my car, and I drove it, you know, almost, well, almost an hour, 45 minutes, to get to her, to talk to her about what she's going through and what she did go through. And it's one of my, one of my greatest goals is to help people become activists. She wants to be an activist. Got your back, girl. I'm going to do well, everything I can to help you. Samantha Narov, you're not just a wounded warrior. You're also a hero of an incredibly important cause. And you and I are going to keep in touch because I'd like to do a story on this in the Jewish Journal. I think our readers need to know about this. Thank you. Thank you for that support because when, when you and you, you take this on and I can see that you can feel this, that you're not just I hearing it. I got four it. daughters and, and imagine, three sisters. And imagine... And a mom. And a mom, beloved okay. mom. That so I now speak we've got eight women in your life. Imagine if their genitals were cut off. Who would they be? Mm. Who would right. they be? Horrible. Would they be the same people you know now? It's not possible. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about impact in ways that we can we can see. Now you live in D.C., right? I, I right it across the river, help. Arlington, Crystal City area, Virginia. It, it helps, right? You're in the seat of global power. Oh, absolutely. And I, this is something that I talk about. I bring this to the attention of many because it's only through combining our efforts that we're going to accomplish this. Chinese foot binding is something that happened in China for centuries because they thought it was the right thing to do. They thought that breaking a little girl's foot, binding it so that it would grow to become a lotus foot three inches long, was the perfect foot, and then that would make men want to marry her. Mm. Well, there were uh, emperors decreed that this was a bad practice and must stop. That didn't stop it. Mm -hmm. People just took it underground. It was shrouded in silence and secrecy. Mm -hmm. You know what stopped it? In the 20th century, it was coalitions who banded together from different places, different locations, different ideas, different concepts, different political views, and said, we're going to stop this. We are not going to let this happen to our little girls. Well, and hopefully that will happen to FGM in America. We can stop it. That's the fight that I want to win. That's the war. These are the battles. That's the war that I want to win. And there's so many people like me who are out there fighting this battle day in and day out. You know, we're talking about doctors, lawyers, activists, scholars, survivors. So you're still in combat mode? 
hey, I'm an old soldier. <laughs> you know, do you have an airplane for me to jump out of? Just give me a parachute and, yeah, uh, and a drop zone, and I'll, uh, I'll put my knees in the breeze. <laughs> All right, Samantha, Narov, thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much for having me. Great.